The following podcast is brought to you by Starbucks Canada. From the Toronto Support Centre, this is Career Passport, a podcast featuring partners across the country showcasing how they landed in the role they're in today and uncovering the stories behind their career trials and triumphs along the way. I'm your host, Donna Ewan. I'm a partner within the talent acquisition team here at Starbucks. So buckle up your seatbelt as we meet our guest for today. Today on Career Passport, we're doing a really special episode feature. To start, it's the first time where we're interviewing not one partner, but two incredible partners simultaneously. Secondly, it's the first time we're highlighting some of our partner networks in Canada. Specifically, I have the privilege to spend some time with Chelsea Gale and Ebony Benjamin virtually. They are two executive partners in our newly formed Black Partner Network in Canada. We are so excited to learn a little bit more about both of you before we dive into the Black Partner Network. So my name is Chelsea and I am a store manager with Starbucks in Brampton, Ontario. I started off with Starbucks as an external hire. I originally started off in the hospitality sector and then was convinced after several attempts by my peers to join Starbucks because it's an amazing company to work for. The work-life balance was super important to me. And after being told by five different people, I finally decided to take the plunge and apply. And I'm happy that I did because I feel like I made the best decision for my career and for my family. That's awesome. What about you, Ebony? I'm almost six year partner with Starbucks and I've been a store manager for just about three years now. And I manage a store in Toronto in Liberty Village. Before Starbucks, I was planning on going to school, becoming a paramedic. I wanted to be in the medical field so badly. That was my dream field. And it all stemmed towards helping people. I landed in Starbucks and by chance landed among a very supportive management team that really drove my development. I started as a barista thinking that it was going to just be a part-time job and I was going to go to school and then just work my way into paramedic. I ended up staying because I really enjoyed everything that Starbucks had to offer, but also everything that Starbucks stood for. That's amazing. Chelsea, as you are the chair of the Black Partner Network, can you talk about the series of events that led you to start this chapter? So we can take it back to the Leadership Experience Conference in Chicago. I actually found out about Partner Networks when I was filling out the registration form. One of the boxes that it asked you to check was if you're a part of any Partner Networks. And I saw the long list and I was looking crazy at it because I didn't know that this was even a thing or where they came from. That's when I was introduced to Black Partner Network to begin with. I went on Workplace, joined the group followed for a couple months before I realized that there was nothing in Canada and I saw the amazing dialogue that was happening, the initiatives that were being formed, the volunteering within the community. I mean, I really wanted that for Canada. So I figured out how to make it work and Canada BPN was formed. There's so many layers of the story, but let's first start with that vision for all of our partners to hear. I will love to see the Black Partner Network reach Canada-wide, different cities, different provinces, just because it's a way for us to get together and really find a common ground. I would love to see it being spearheaded by Black partners, but for sure the strength being allies and that allyship. Those are really inspirational dreams for not just the Black Partner Network, but really any network, true or false. Is the Black Partner Network exclusively for Black partners? False. And do you currently have non-Black partners in your network? Black Partner Network is open to everyone. It's not specific to a race. There are plenty of partners that are a part of our network that don't identify as Black. 
One of our community outreach leads is Italian. He is an ally and supports the movement. We want to have people who understand that there's issues and want to be a part of the change. Um, want to educate themselves so they can be better allies um, and people who are looking for a safe place to, to come together. As I was counting, around October was when the idea formulated and in February is when you brought it to life. Technically, that's about four months. Do you mind just sharing about some of the steps on a high level of starting this new network? First and foremost, trying to get a hold of the SSC because that's where all the magic happens and was advised by some amazing leaders on how it'd be best to get it organized and set up in, in Canada. We then essentially established an executive champion who, at the time, Michael Conway, who's no longer with us in Canada, unfortunately. And then we needed to formulate a team. So I reached out to as many leaders as I could find who was passionate about the issues that I had and would help me bring our mission and values to life within the network. We decided on a day. Black History Month is very important. And it was important that we launched during the month of February. So that's so done. Clearly, you're a very convincing partner. Probably it's very intuitive for you. What did you do to bring someone like Michael Conway into being the executive sponsor? It started with an email asking and saying, if you say yes, this is what we need. And this is, <laughs> this is what our expectations are. He was like, yeah, I love it. When can we meet? I want to meet you in person. Um, and that was my first time at the regional office. Super duper nervous um, when I sat down and I met with him. Palms were sweaty. I was sweating from everywhere. I had the opportunity to sit down across from him and just to hear him say that he believes in the network and how important it is for Canadians to experience, let's say, unity as the Black partners are experiencing in the States was amazing. And he was excited to be a part of what we were creating. Starting a new network isn't an easy task. And not only have you done this, but between your official launch in February, the team has had to navigate many challenges. So can you take us through some of these challenges you've had to overcome? We went through some tribulations. First was COVID hitting and majority of us are store managers. So we either had to go through closures, relocation, dispersing partners, or just partner care behind all of the things that were happening. Then our executive champion had left Canada to work in another sector of Starbucks. So it's definitely all those things that happened one thing after the other. Then the killing of George Floyd really sparked a different initiative. We really had originally wanted to get ourselves out there and let people know that the support of the Black Partner Network was there. With the killing of George Floyd, we realized our purpose was greater. Our purpose was to be there for the support of our partners, ensuring that our partners had the voice to be heard and know that this network is for them through and through. I know that you mentioned in the past going from physical meets to virtual meets. How's navigating that piece? Originally, and I think this happened to a lot of people's perspective, is that you have a meeting, you have it in person. So it was juggling all of our schedules. All, a lot of us are store managers. Some of us work in a support center. So we all have different schedules. Sometimes our meetings will be super late in the evening or somebody had to drive far, but we made it work. With COVID hitting and not being able to be in person for safety precaution reasons, it really resulted in us becoming creative with our meetings and going online, teams meetings and we realized that we were able to have more connects now that we know that there's other options apart from physical connects, which is great because we were able to check in on each other, make sure that we're okay, get some initiative rolling 
And just in the last minute, like, hey, I want to get the immediacy of this needs to be going right now. So that definitely changed our whole way of connecting. But I love it now. Not only have you faced certain challenges as a team, but I think it's important to shed light about your personal experiences as a Black person. Moving the discussion, let's first start with microaggressions. How do you define it personally? Do you have any stories of microaggressions that you've personally had to weather through? Microaggressions, macroaggressions, I mean, I've, I've had both encounters. Let's keep it up to Starbucks. Customers come in and demand to speak to a manager and I pop my head out from behind the bar and say, oh, I'm the manager. Like, what's going on? Let's talk. And they're like, no, no, no. I don't want a supervisor. I want a manager. I'm the store manager. My name is Chelsea Gale. Like, I have my cards in the back. No, it's okay. I don't want to speak to you. Just give me the number for head office then. Another issue, I'll be making a drink for a customer. Oh, no, it's okay. I don't want you to make the drink. But a white barista will come around. Oh, yeah, she can do it. That's fine. Okay, smile or not. How do you even put a brave face to that and meeting with kindness when those kind of episodes happen? For me, I've, I've had I'm 29, tons of years of practice. I've always been taught and raised by my family to smile and nod because when you don't, you might be outnumbered and something bad may happen. So when you're home and in a safe place, we can talk about it. But when you're on the road and you're out and you're not protected, be careful. I'm curious to know with George Floyd, The list goes on and on with trouble with the police. Have you ever personally experienced harassment from the police? I can recall a specific time when me, my mom, and some friends were all at a barbecue. There was nothing out of the ordinary. We were packing up actually to leave. It was at night and we were all walking out and a bunch of cop cars actually came up and some police officers came out and were questioning what was going on. Anybody who knows my mom is not confrontational. Throughout that whole ordeal of them questioning us what was going on, have no idea why, because none of us committed any kind of crime. We were literally going home. One of them grabbed my mom and pulled her to the side. And my initial reaction was, oh my gosh, why? And like, I wanted to leap and like save my mom, but I had a family friend like hold me back. He's like, relax. Those are the police. You don't know what their intentions are. You don't know what's going to come out of it. It was definitely very troubling to see my mom in that situation and knowing that I don't know what the outcome would be. And this was five, six years ago. So it's not something that was recent. This kind of tension with police officer, this kind of curiosity of what's going to happen when you're interacting with a police officer has come about. I think that the conversations are being sparked now, which is great. But I like people to know that this is a long history that we've had with us just not knowing if the interaction with the police officer that day is going to be a positive one or a very tragic one. I mean, thank you for sharing that. Kelsey, have you experienced something similar? I have two handfuls of male friends who have been aggressively attacked by police officers that have left lasting marks and impressions on them mentally and physically. I find that with men, police officers are a lot more aggressive and will use the force. With women, it's a little bit different. So for my story, this is back in high school, kids being kids. We had gotten into a fight, police were called, and it was a handful of us, all different ethnicities. Instantly, all the black girls were put on to the side and were told to sit here and wait here and sit on the curb and not move. The white girls who are with us, our friends who were part of it as well, 
they said, why are you here? And the girls were like, well, I was in the fight the same way Chelsea and everybody else was. No, no, no. Who told you to, to jump in the fight? Like this wasn't your doing. Somebody encouraged you to do this, right? And they were like, yeah, no. Like, what are you trying to get me to say? And they're like, hurry up and go home. You don't belong here. This is for them. And I couldn't understand that. In my head, I'm like, well, she's just as guilty as we are. But why did you pick all the black girls to sit on off the side and get interrogated by the police and send the white girls home? I wanted to go into the hair topic because as I'm doing a lot of research myself, I hear that got brought up a lot. I just want to rewind back and explain the difference between micro and macro. Macro is very in your face. It's very, this is racism. It's undeniable. It's the N word. It's the, I'm directly commenting on the color of your skin or like a stereotype. A microaggression can be something that is used to gaslight a person. So, oh, that's not what I meant. Or, oh, you're, you're being too sensitive about that situation, even though it's something that that person may have grown up being told their whole life. Going back to my hair, my hair is my identity. My hair is something that I hold very sacred to me. I change my hair a lot. That's one of the fun things I love to do. Sometimes it's natural, sometimes it's colored. I love having that versatility because it makes me who I am. But I have had people make comments or people come up to touch my hair without my permission, which is my personal boundary. I would never come up and touch somebody else without permission. It's always failed as, oh, I was just curious how it felt, the different textures. I've never known about it. Why are you being so sensitive? It's definitely a microaggression because especially when there aren't other Black people around you to look around and say, like, this is very offensive, you feel alone. And then now you feel like you can't even defend yourself because you're going to be stereotyped as, in my case, an angry Black woman who is putting up a fuss for no reason. How often does that happen? I can't recall a workplace that I've been in where it hasn't been like a backward comment or just an invasion of my space. When it comes to my hair, I have no hesitation towards compliments, but when it gets to oh my gosh, how does your hair get that way? It just becomes a probing into my hair, my hair texture. And like I'm in a zoo almost. And instead of being appreciated, I'm being picked apart. In interviews, did you feel like either of you had to wear your hair a certain way? Yes, I definitely never worn my hair naturally to a job interview or any important event that I had to be in front of many people. Just because I, I would rather avoid the probing and the invasion of space than to feel like I'm comfortable in my own skin. I love my natural hair, but sometimes you just you, you feel like it's better to just not embark on that territory. I know for me, hair has always been a thing for me growing up. Because of the society that I grew up in, the schools that I went to, I was almost brainwashed to believe that black hair will never be good enough. I can't tell you the amount of times I've gone to school with girls in elementary school and their hair was natural. By the time we saw each other again in, in middle school, high school, their hair was chemically enhanced because of the consistent mocking and teasing by their white counterparts, making them feel like they weren't pretty enough, making them feel like they weren't valued as much, making them feel ugly. Society and media didn't do a good job of supporting black women either until recently. To get back to your point about interviews and careers, for every interview I've ever had, my hair has always been enhanced. It's never been natural. 
I've seen other people going for the same job and their hair would be natural. Their hair would be out, would be curly. And I saw the look on the interviewer's face when they walked up. So I actually came across this quote. When inclusion works, you don't see it. But when you feel excluded, all that you feel in your career to date, have you ever felt excluded as a Black person? Have I ever felt excluded? 100%. Depending on the role that I'm in, I've always been a one of one. I always felt like I had to blend in to be included. Coming from the restaurant industry within my corporation, just different locations, um, and I've seen a lot of diversity and lack thereof. And you know, making one comment of, oh, why is there only one Indian person that works there? Oh, well, we don't hire them. And the minute I make a statement and say something, they're like, oh, you have a problem with it? Because when you have a problem with it and you speak up, oh, well, why do you have to be like that? And the minute a Black person speaks up for something, they're too passionate, they're too powerful, they're too aggressive. Why are you never satisfied? I'm just fighting for someone else's basic rights. That's not doing anything outside of that. But because it's coming from me and not a white person, it's a problem. Because I've been in rooms where I've said certain things and I've had somebody else who's white say the exact same things on a different day, but their idea is taken for what it is and mine was dismissed. What about you, Ebony? I know there are many people like myself, Black partners, who would love to work up into the company, but when you see that there's only one Black partner or there's no Black partners, it's kind of discouraging because you don't want to be the one of one. I think a lot of people will look at it as, oh, you know, you're breaking barriers and you're making the team more diverse. But when you are the only Black partner, a lot of the responsibility is on you to lead and represent your race. That is a lot of pressure for sure. It's also a lot of having to stick up for any microaggression that may come to pass. So I would definitely love to see that there are more people of color in leadership positions. So we can definitely get those partners who didn't think that it was possible for them to be in executive positions, in leadership positions, that they're not going to be the one of one, that they're not going to be the only one. I definitely want to see that within our leadership team. And I think that comes from us not just looking for the one, us really digging in and talking to every partner and seeing where that barrier is and, and, and why, what stopped a Black partner from wanting to pursue that role. I definitely agree. And I've always been a one of one, especially in a management role. I felt spoken as I am. I've only ever been out to prove to my direct reports to why I was worthy enough for a specific role. And I found that I've, I've been having to prove and prove and prove that my entire life. But let's explore solutions. What would you do if you could do something about it? I would create a safe space for people who are looking for development. So a lot of times we talk about like the hunger of us going after our position, which absolutely is important for us to want the position, especially when you're talking about executive or leadership position, you have to want it to be successful. But let's create the safe space to say, hey, come and learn about all the positions we have to offer. And if you're interested in a position within partner resources, within facilities, then here, give me your name, your number, and then we'll be in contact and kind of bridging that gap and making that open up to many areas and not just centering it around a small community in Toronto or in Montreal, like making it a, a global thing and making more partners interested. I think getting that energy 
And when more partners see that there's Black partners going for these positions and getting these positions because they were afforded the ability to have that connection with somebody among the executive and leadership team, then more partners of color will be able to have that kind of energy to get to where they want to be. I love that. One of our four pillars is creating a culture of warmth and belonging. What is important for leaders to consider when trying to care for Black partners on their team? So for instance, we're talking about George Floyd's murder. Everybody knew what happened. Everybody probably looked at their Black partners and said, ooh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. If you're uncomfortable having that conversation, which is fair, designate somebody to be the one to check in on those partners. For me, I think it's super important when we're onboarding to let new partners know about our partner networks. So they know from the beginning that they have an avenue to explore or they have a group that they can commit to that will support them along their Starbucks journey. A a group that they can go to because let's say their manager is not comfortable having tough conversations that have to do with race. And we're only human beings. Like I'm not going to ask every store manager to be able to, to be comfortable having that conversation, but be comfortable referring them to a resource. During COVID, I've tried my best to check in on everybody. I knew what I had to deal with. With a drive through store that did not close at all, 80% of my team staying home to take the cap pay, inheriting partners from other stores to help support my team. I know I went through a lot, so I can only imagine what my peers were going through. Checking in, offering as much support as I possibly can, being an ear to listen. Sometimes they just wanted to vent, maybe I caught them at a time where they're ready to, to bear it all and I will be your punching bag. Just the support piece during those times was important for me. For me, it's it's not even the question, but a lot of times people don't realize when they ask questions, they're on their phone or walking through the store. So like, I know that you're not genuinely interested in what I have to say regardless. So it, it's about being attentive. I think it starts off with the, hey, I genuinely want to know how you're feeling, how you're doing, because we all have a lot of things going on in our lives. I'm guilty of it too, that sometimes we get into a robotic, how are you doing today? Oh, good. How are you? Good, good, good. And it's almost like a script back and forth. I see you come to me and and you say, hey, I I know there's a lot going on. I've been listening to the news. I I genuinely want to check in to see how I can support you. And even maybe coming with your own ways that you can support, because a lot of times you're asking people who are being personally impacted, how can you fix your injury? And it's hard when you're the one that is affected to learn how we can change. So maybe come with your own ideas. Hey, do you need a day off? Or can I join you? I I saw a protest happening. You know, would that be something you want us to get the entire team together for? So that myself as a Black partner is not always having to lead that initiative. I love that analogy that you gave. One thing that I I did also want to talk about is being not racist is not good enough. But what's actually more important is to become anti-racist. What does anti-racism look like to you? I think being not racist is just, I won't say these things, do this thing in front of you. I think being anti-racist is even when a Black person is not there, if you see racism happening, speak up, be vocal about it the way that you would want anyone to be vocal about someone personally attacking you. Anti-racist is, is, especially being an ally, is standing for the macro and microaggressions as you start to learn it and not question and almost gaslight how a Black person may feel about something that is being said. I was just going to say, being aware of unconscious biases and stopping them from forming. Think before you speak, and myself included, we blurt out our first response. So when we talk about being aware of unconscious biases, it's thinking about what you're saying before you actually say it and be aware of the surroundings that you're in. 
know your demographic, your audience prior to speaking. For sure. For both of you personally, what does allyship look like? The biggest foundation to be an ally is listening. And when I say listening, I mean listening, not just hearing or, oh, but are you sure that that happened because of that? A lot of the times why I haven't come forward on experiences that happened to me is because I knew that I was going to be gaslighted. It's little comments that you don't feel comfortable going up to someone who doesn't consider themselves an ally. Also recognizing that as a Black partner, as a Black person, we go through a lot. So as much as we will want to educate, just understand that we're going through it ourselves and not always leaning on us for every piece of information or support for you. Being an ally is listening. And when I'm being vulnerable and including you on some personal experiences that I've had, don't dismiss them by saying, well, what makes you think it has to do with race? That happens far too often. And I know it has to do with race because this same situation has happened to me time and time again. And you don't have to apologize. You never did it to me. So that's the one thing. You're not responsible. And I'm not blaming every white person for everything that's happened to black people. But I need you to acknowledge what I've gone through. I need you to sympathize as my friend. And let's work on how we can make this environment that we're in a more inclusive. The whole purpose of us sharing these experiences is to shed light on, on what happens to prevent it from happening to somebody else. That, that's super powerful. I think we're kind of landing onto the last question for today. And I first want to start off by thanking both of you for being really vulnerable. These are raw, real, tough things that you've both had to go through. As each of us has a role to play, what would you want to see as a direction towards change? I would love to see more minority leaders, more black leaders, because if we're going to make change in the company, I, for me, seeing somebody who is like me will really push that next generation of leaders. Again, I was very fortunate in my younger barista days to have a manager that was very, very ferocious with her development. But there's a lot of people who look like me who don't see people like me in management positions and non-retail positions. And that's going to discourage them from even wanting to apply because we all grew up knowing that we're not the first pick. We're not the I or we're the one of one. And now that we see the one in the in the leadership position, there's no other. So I would love to see more consciousness towards that diversity in leadership positions. That's a good answer. I think that this is a good point to finish the podcast for people to think about that. And again, I want to thank you both for your time and your honesty and transparency. And that wraps up this episode of Career Passport. Be sure to like, subscribe, and if you feel up for it, even give us a review. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Donna Ewan, and this is Starbucks Canada Career Passport.